Well done. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, yeah, I don't sound too bad. I, I felt a little sick this morning. I thought, can I call in sick today? Uh, no, probably not. Yeah, so I tell Maggie, I tell Maggie, we have to go to church. I'm the pastor, so sorry about that. <coughs> she definitely wanted to roll over this morning, too. Um, so good morning. Um, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today, uh, which would be very appropriate because our message is about him. Uh, and so with that, let's uh, get right into it. So let's open up with prayers we do and thank God for the time that we have together to <clears throat> worship our Lord, to be with one another in love and in unity um, as we soak up his word. And so with that, let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for your grace that is limitless. We thank you for your forgiveness, for your love, for your patience, and that you continue, Father, to bestow upon us your favor, though we don't deserve it, not by a mile. But you are good to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. And as we uh, gather together at his table at the Lord's Supper, we know that he is here in our midst. Not just every time we gather together, the Lord is in our midst. And so may we see him, Father. And therefore through him see you. And that we would be enlightened, uh, regenerated, restored, recharged by your word, by your love, and by um, your many, many favors. And we ask, Father, that through, our, uh, through the Holy Spirit that we would <clears throat> sing to you and, and worship you as we should. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All rise, please.
Uh, we're going to start in Colossians 1. Colossians 1, 15. Uh, and the Psalms uh, contain the Messiah uh, in all forms. What I mean is, uh, the, we see the Messiah is pre-incarnate history, uh, his birth, Death, resurrection, ascension, session, second coming—they're uh, all there, and they're they're beautiful. Uh, on Thursday, we looked at Psalm 22, which starts off with "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Um, in our prayer life, and again, the, we're emphasizing here praying the Psalms. Uh, in our prayer life, we're uh, these are these are going to be our most, uh, let's say, um, heart-wrenching prayers, uh, meaning that we're going to relate ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ because He is in us and we're in Him, uh, and it's it's incredible what God has done through Him. Uh, it's more than we know. And, and that's why, when it comes to him uh, in our, our life, as we'll, we'll see here today, that uh, in our prayer life, we're constantly seeking to uh, have our, our thinking and our conduct in harmony with his. All right? so, because, and the reason is, is because that's who we are. We've been made new creatures in his image. Uh, and, and so this life that we've been given here, this born-again life, is much, much more than we know. And, and, and that's what we've got to find. You know, we're, we're seeking day in and day out through the Scriptures, trying to keep ourselves in line. Because when you're walking the narrow path, that's when you're going to see Him you know, and learn of Him and become like Him. That's why, uh, you know, for instance, a, a life of sin like the Corinthians, uh, they, they had a, their great issue with their thinking that grace meant that they could live in a way that was worldly and fleshly and that grace made that okay. And, and part of the, what they were missing out, which Paul writes two lengthy letters to them to try and correct them, was that they're missing out on seeing the Messiah, and that, that's our life, and we've got to see him and know 
that what we see in him is us. Right? To completely identify with the reality that what you see in him is what you see in you. You and him, me and him, are one. That means his life is my life. His life is our life. And it's it's incredible, uh, and it will um, greatly change the way that you see everything. Uh, Now, uh, Jesus told his disciples after his resurrection in Luke 24 that Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms all spoke of him. In Luke 24, he showed them through Moses, through the prophets and the Psalms. He said, look, this is me. And therefore, he was revealing to them and to us that he is the center of all Scripture. All Scripture speaks of him. Uh, The Lord Jesus is the center and fulfillment of all of history, of all the promises of God, of all the covenants fulfilled that he has made to Israel, to us, uh, to the church, all of them are fulfilled in him. He and he alone is, is it. Right? He's the end-all, be-all. He's the one. Right? So it's God become a man. And there's no one like him. And we are him. So look at Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By the way, verses 15 through 20, uh, it even has a rhyming scheme in the original Greek. Uh, It is a hymn. This is definitely a hymn. It's an early church hymn. It has the, uh, in poetry, the the meter uh, uh, is uh, called feet, uh, and this has feet. It has meter, it has rhyme, and it is a hymn. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Notice that, the firstborn of all creation. The Jehovah's Witnesses use this verse to say, look, he's a created being. Um, No, he certainly was born of a virgin, sure, uh, but he is eternal, as he says in this passage, or this passage says of him. But firstborn means preeminent one, you know, just like in the... In a Jewish family, the firstborn son would have privileges that the others didn't. And that's what this means. It's referring to Christ as the preeminent one. But notice that though God is invisible, that Jesus Christ is visible. He is incarnate, the visible manifestation of the invisible God. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure... For all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things in heaven or things in earth. Um, and so th- there's so much here. There's, there's quite, quite a bit. Uh, quite a bit of, of doctrine that needs to be understood. 
but the th what we're going to focus on is the first line. He is the image of the invisible God. Uh, this is, and also, of course, as we, as we continue in the passage, he has all rule and authority. Uh, all things are created through him and by him, so he's the creator. He's before all creation, therefore he's not created. He uh, has a self, uh, he is eternal. And <clears throat> uh, through his cross, we've been reconciled to God. And, and therefore, we're by his cross, we're in him, he's in us. We're reconciled to the Father forever. So, <clears throat> this, you know, and how can that be other than that our fallen image has been um, uh, crucified and we've been given his image. So note that we, male and female, were made in God's image. Uh, Genesis 1.26. Male and female, God made us in his image. When he made us out of the dirt of the ground, in chapter 2 of Genesis, he breathed into us the neshama. That's the Hebrew word for the breath of God. Uh, and so that made us a living, as it says in Genesis, a living soul. So as uh, unfallen, we were the image of God. Therefore, as human beings, we reflected God. We uh, were uh, those who, in, in perfection, at, at the limited uh, place that we're at, because it doesn't make us God. God didn't make us gods or human beings who reflect his image. And then we fell. When we ate of the tree and we fell, we maintained God's image. Some think that we're not in God's image anymore, but that's false. In, uh, Genesis 9-6, which is the covenant made with Noah, is it says that uh, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. All right? So <clears throat> that's why if if someone is murdered, the the uh, the criminal should be the murderer should be murdered uh, or executed, and that is because we're in the image of God. So we still have His image. The problem is, is that it's a fallen image, uh, and, and so this creates for us an an enormous problem, as you know, as I know. We ceased, when we fell, we ceased to be the perfect vehicle for the representation of God. However, we're not completely uh, effaced, an effaced image, meaning that we're not completely, uh, how should we say, uh, we haven't completely ruined that image. Uh, the unbeliever still loves, right? The unbeliever still wants goodness in his life. The unbeliever still wants things that are good, he can't do them. None of us can, but it's there. The, the love of beauty, the love of love, the love of good things. Uh, and that's us in God's image. However, and the animals lack this. The animal kingdom don't have it, but we do. And uh, <clears throat> these qualities, though, take, for instance, the love of beauty, are uh, flawed and misshapen. And so they cause us to get in trouble. Right? So we love beauty, but what do we, because we're fallen, you know, what do we do as a consequence? And oftentimes we do criminal things. There's definitely sinful things. And this becomes our real problem. 
Uh, in this book, this is a terrific book by George MacDonald called The Hope of, Glor uh, Hope of the Gospel. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, he said, however absurd the statement may appear to one who has not yet discovered the fact for himself, the cause of every man's discomfort is evil, moral evil. And, of course, he's exactly right. In this, that, this particular chapter in the book, MacDonald makes clear, beautiful language, that it's, what's the problem with man is not his type of government or not the laws or policies. It's his sinfulness. And that is our problem. And this fallen image that we have is created for us and in us a love of sin. And even for those of us who have grown to hate sin because you love the Lord and you love his way, you know and I know that we still commit sin. And it's heartbreaking. You know, we, we do things that we're ashamed of. We hurt people and we're ashamed of it. And it's because we're fallen. None of it. God is very clear. None of us are going to ever reach sinless perfection in this life. It's going to be one of the great wonders of the eternal state is our sinlessness. It's going to be quite nice. <laughs> but until then, we have this evil. Now, it, we're not hopeless to overcome it. And that's, that's the point. And this is going to be one of the parts of your prayer life is that as you're identifying with Christ... You're coming to know that what he is, you are. And what does Christ do? You know, what, what does he think? What does he love? What does he think is beautiful? That's what I must. And, and you must do this. By faith, you say he is me and I am him. By faith, I don't always feel like him, but I am him. And so when I read in the scripture of his graciousness, I say I must be gracious just like he is. When I read of his love, I must love like he loves. He told us to do this. A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. <clears throat> when I read of his suffering, I say I must suffer, not cause myself to suffer, but I must go through it like he did. As Paul said in Philippians 3, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. Why did Paul say that? Because Paul understood, I must be what Christ is. I must be, because I am him and he is me. So in Colossians 1, he is this icon. We've adopted this word into English. He is the image, the Greek word is icon, of the invisible God. And so, what does that mean? That means he is the exact representation of God in the flesh. God is invisible. Christ is God visible. And so we can see him. We can, as John writes in his epistle, we can touch him. We can hear him. We can see him. And, you know, he's not here for us to see him, but we have his word. And he's in us. He indwells us. He's at the right hand of God praying for us. Right? There's nothing limiting us from seeing him other than our own, you know, desire not to. But we get, and getting back to sin, you know, sin is a very serious problem. The more sin that's in my life, the less I'm seeing Christ. The less sin in my life, the more I'm seeing him. Day in and day out. I must behold him. So sin becomes a very big issue for us. 
It's not a non-issue. Just be, uh, it's forgiven, thank God. But Jesus put it right when he taught us to pray. He said, say this, forgive us our sins and our iniquities. Forgive us our, our sins and our debts as we forgive others. And so every day we have sins to confess. And for the purpose of overcoming so Christ is the visible image of what God is who is, in, who is invisible. He restores us this image. So this is the great news here. See this, he is the image of the invisible God. We're made in the image of God, but we fell. And now instead of God like remaking our image or kind of like, I don't know, you know, trying to fix us, he didn't repair us. Right? He crucified us, and then he gave us another image. It's still God's image, but it's better than what Adam and Eve had. And that's why, as it says on the slide, God's grace in Christ will yet accomplish more than what we lost in Adam. What, what is that more? It's Christ himself. See, I wasn't given Adam's image again, like a perfect image of Adam. I wasn't given that. What I was given... Christ's image, this invisible, the, the visible manifestation of the visible, invisible God. That what was given to me. Think of the new, think of how, it's incredible. It's incredible. You could not have been given anything more. Right? And we're running around. I'd, I don't want to whack myself in the face with a two-by-four because of... Uh, you know, decisions I've made lately, which are, you know, based on the fact that I got my eyes off of what I really am. You know, when, our eye, when we see this for what it is, what more could we be given? And we're like little idiots running around trying to get stuff. What more could you want? And yet we do, we want. But you couldn't have received anything more than him. And this is the true joy of the Christian because the, the Christian who understands what it is to have Christ, and that Christian is happy. Right? He doesn't depend upon his circumstances. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. He doesn't, that those things don't matter to him or her. What matters is, is that they have Christ. And every day, through study, through prayer, through living, uh, we can see more and more of him. And everything that I see of him, I say, you know what, that's mine. Now, I see his love, that's my love. I see his hope, that's my hope. I see his peace, that's my peace. I must have his. And it's really quite wonderful. So, God restored our image. But not to the original image of Adam in the garden. Now it's the image of Christ. Go to Romans 8, please. Romans 8:28 Should read more of this. Romans 8:28. I'm turning to myself cuz where, where's Romans? Good lord. I think I'd know by now. All right, there we are. 
I, even my little holy ribbon was on it. I didn't know that. All right. And we know, Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, when someone, uh, it was actually uh, Arnold Frutenbaum, who was the first to explain to me this passage in, in a manner that I had not seen before. And now, I've always looked at predestination or as God foreknew, right? You see that word, foreknowledge. That God is looking down the corridors of time and that he's seeing how history is playing out. And the problem with that idea, it makes sense to the human mind. It's very helpful, that idea, but it's wrong. That's the problem with it. <laughs> uh, if God, God is not anticipating history, he makes history. He's not looking at it and saying, wow, look at that. I think I'll allow that to happen. And the way that we can prove this to ourselves is that this very word foreknowledge is used for Christ. Christ is foreknown and predestined. So God didn't look down the carters of time and see the cross. He made the cross. And so we, this, this passage and others like it, uh, they, they bring up to us the conundrum of a God who is outside of time, which we can't comprehend. So, But what we do know is that each of us have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that means God made it so. When God foreknows, he does it. When God predestines, he does it. He's not waiting for it to happen. He makes it happen. And it's a difficult concept. <clears throat> but what we know is, is that all of us, see, this is the good news. And for dummies like us, we don't have to figure out how God does all this. Because it's impossible to figure it out. Every one of us will be conformed to the image of Christ. Every one of us. And I, I would say that death, the process of death in heaven, the eternal state, are part of the process. But, here, but we can all know this for sure, that we have been predestined, that God has done it, that we will all be in the image of Christ. And so there's nothing preventing me from being that now. I mean, you know, I'm not going to be it perfectly. I, I have to understand that about myself, uh, you know, that I'm going to sin. Uh, I'm not always going to look like Christ. But I must, all the time. Right? This, is my, this is my destiny. This is what God has given me. I have been given his image. And But, <clears throat> at the same time, we confess our sins, right? Because we're going to fail at this. And we also forgive one another. It's very important. Because a part of Christ is the unity. The unity of the Trinity, in fact, is given to us in the unity of the body of Christ. So, <clears throat> each of us to one another, we must forgive one another. And I, I know at times it's hard to do it. Um, especially if there's someone in your life who has a repetitive... So, well, all of us do. 
<laughs> we, all, <clears throat> we all sin in our areas of weakness, and so we have repetitive cycles of sin. And we've got to forgive one another. Right? And, it, you know, it doesn't mean that at times, you know, that God is going to discipline. God will lead you in that. But none of us can sit on God's throne and be judges. So, we've got a long way to go. Right? The image of Christ. But the image of Christ is us. Everything that he is. Everything that you see. In the psalm that we'll read today, you have to see yourself as Christ. <clears throat> uh, so, verse 29 again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. All right, go forward to Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verse 9. He says, uh, Paul writes, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed. Now, notice how he writes this. This is uh, in an arist. Uh, which speaks of the fact that uh, this putting on and putting off the old self has been accomplished when you believe in Christ as your Savior. Uh, this, the parallel passage in Ephesians has more of the flavor of currently put off the old and put on the new. And we have to do that, right? That's us uh, living the life of Christ properly. But here in Colossians 3, the implication is that this has been done for us. And this is absolutely true. Both things are true. Meaning that I am a new creature in Christ. And over time, day by day, I must live that way. And, and that's the, the putting on the new currently. But I also know that I have already put on the new. I'm a new creature. So notice in verse 10, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now, note, there's our word icon again, image. Uh, We are being renewed according to the image of the one who created him. Created what? Created the new creature. Created us, our our new life, our new self. So, with these passages... Colossians 1, Colossians 3, Romans 8. We put them all together and we see that we, have a, we had a fallen image and that God did not repair that image. God also did not give us the same image of unfallen Adam. But what God has made us as new creatures is the image of Christ. And, and it says here and right here, and I love how it's stated this way, that according to the image of the one who created him, being renewed, 
Right, so day in and day out, through the true knowledge, epinosis, the true knowledge that is from the Scripture, I'm seeing the mind of Christ in the Scripture. I'm seeing the life of Christ in the Scripture. I'm seeing everything that He is, His love, His peace, His suffering, His wisdom, His, his will, His obedience. And when I see that, what I'm seeing is me. Because this image that I've been given is him. Now, interestingly, during the tribulation, the uh, beast, uh, oh, sorry, one of the, there's two beasts. There's a, there's a beast one and beast two. It's kind of like uh, um, the cat in the hat book. You know, in the cat in the hat, they have thing one and thing two. Uh, there's beast one and beast two. And, and beast two has an image made of the beast. And he makes this image. And the people are to worship this image. In Revelation 13, and that's where the 666 comes from. Right? The, that's the number of the beast. And the people are to worship this image. And a, it's the name, or, or the name of the image or the number is an image that is put on every person. And if you don't have that image on you, you can't buy or sell anything. So it'll cost you your life in the tribulation not to take the image of the beast. But it's the same word, icon. And what does it show us? That Satan makes counterfeits. He makes a counterfeit image. There's a counterfeit image of Christ out there in the world. Unfortunately, that counterfeit image is taught in churches, sadly. Uh, and But Satan makes counterfeit, and this image of the beast is just ridiculous. As you read it, you're like, good Lord, why would anybody want to worship that thing? But they, you're going to be forced to by cost of your life. And uh, Satan makes counterfeits, but he does a poor job. Satan's counterfeits are dumb. And we should be able to see them. We should be able to see right through them. That's why we need the Word of God. So through the Word of God, we see the image. In Colossians 3, 4, which I have a, you can read it because you're in Colossians, but His image is our image. Uh, Christ who is our life. In Colossians 3, 4, it says that He will appear. He's going to... He's going to appear at the second coming or the rapture, and we're going to appear with him. Uh, he is us. See that, Look at the wording here in this passage. Paul is very clear. It's very easy to put the word uh, like or likewise. He doesn't write Christ who is like our life. He could have easily written that, but he doesn't. He says Christ is our life. So it's the ha Christos, which is the subject, and Zoe is the object. Well, really, it's predicate nominative. Aren't you aren't you impressed with my Greek now? Uh, so they, and it show it puts them side by side. They're equal. Christ is our life. So in this way, when you see Christ's way, his life, his truth in the Scripture, that's you. Right? This is us. We have to adopt them fully into our heart, <clears throat> and it's the only thing we're really made for. 
We're made for this. God has made us for this very purpose. With this truth of the new covenant in mind, that's what it really is, the new covenant in his blood, which is what we'll celebrate this morning, uh, <clears throat> we, we, we see it for what it is. And when we see that, then we're ready to see our, when we know this, right? This has to be, that's why I started with this. That when now that we turn to Psalms that are about our Lord, we note that these Psalms are about us. And because he is in us and we're in him. So everything in life, therefore, takes on this challenge. Of, and remember, we're made for this. We're made for this. We're given the scripture so that we'll understand it, and we can understand the scripture. Because of whom? Because we have the Holy Spirit. So he is our paraclete, our helper. He's the one who helps us to understand the scripture, helps us to understand that we are sons or children of God in Romans 8, uh, 15. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then the Holy Spirit uh, empowers us to live this life that we're designed for. And when we know this, then, see, there's, this is not me, uh, you know, there's an idea that I'm going to live a certain life and that God's going to be kind of impressed by that and then he's going to bless me because he sees what a good little boy I am. And, and there's this idea of, you know, I'm reaching for a life that's just kind of like an improvement on the old life. Like, I'm a, I'm a little bit nicer. Uh, I'm a little less of a jerk. I don't shoot my mouth off as much. <laughs> I'm trying to, trying to think of things. That, that, that's me, you know. Uh, and <clears throat> that's not at all what it is, what this is. It's not, not at all. This is the life of Christ. And this, this where the conviction comes from is that I've been made for this. I'm not trying to attain to something that's, you know, a little better than my old, my normal self so that I'll impress people or impress God. It's, I'm actually, I already have this life. It was given to me in salvation. I'm attaining to a life that I am, that I'm made for, and that God is in me to make possible, to make happen. <clears throat> so he became, this is, so everything in my life, becomes oneness with the Lord. What kind of a husband is he? What kind of a wife would he be? What kind of a worker? What kind of a person? What would he love? What would he watch? What would he say? What would he dream about? What would he will? What does he really want? What makes him happy? These are all things that are going to make me happy. I'm designed for it. And this is really good news. He became us so that we could become him. I love that point. He became us, visible manifestation of the invisible God, took upon himself flesh and blood. And that's a great passage in Hebrews 2. It says that he took upon flesh and blood so that he could destroy death and the devil. All right, so he sets us free. And, you know, we, we, this, is, this is our life. It's him. So when I read of him, I am to know that that life is my own. When I see him, love, 
and love others. That's how I am to be. When I see him teach and pray, when I see his joy and his sorrow, which is what we're going to look at today. So let's go to Psalm 69. <clears throat> Psalms 22 and 69 are passion psalms, uh, meaning that they speak of the Lord's passion. Those um, days and hours just leading up to his cross when he suffered so greatly. Even before he was hung on the cross, he suffered greatly. And then, of course, on the cross he suffers. Uh, <clears throat> we're promised that we'll have suffering in this life. Like, right? Like, thanks, God. Thanks for that promise. But you are promised it. We were called not just to believe in him, but to suffer for his namesake. That is Philippians 1.29. That's right there in black and white. That we are to suffer. However, there's great joy in the believer because, as I just said a little bit ago, Paul desired to fellowship with Christ's sufferings. He wrote that in Philippians 3.10. And I want to fellowship with his sufferings. Now, why would Paul want that? See, I can read about Christ's sufferings and be thankful for Christ's sufferings. Why would I want to actually suffer them? And, you know, what we would see there is that Paul wanted to identify with Christ in everything. And so, you know, you don't really know about suffering until you go through it. Even for sin, you don't know the ravages of sin until you've experienced it. You don't know how strong sin is until you've tried to resist it. Everybody who gives in to sin easily knows nothing about it. But for those who resist, they know how powerful sin can be. And the same thing is true here of experiencing the suffering of Christ. Now, we can't make that suffering for ourselves. We can't go find it. I know people have tried this, this ascetic kind of situation. But if you're putting the suffering on yourself, it's not the same. That's not at all what this is. This is a suffering that God is going to allow us to go through. Uh, so, you know, why is there joy? And when I can understand and see Christ in his suffering, then there's a great joy in me. And the great joy comes from the fact that I know that I have Christ. His gift is more valuable than anything by by. By how much? You know, there's, there's no number to describe it. His gift, what I have in him, is far more valuable than all the riches in the world put together. And I have them. And you have them. And this should give us great joy. I'm never going to lose them. Uh, my life can be one of discovering him and walking with him. Right? This is what we're told to do. Walk with him. Fellowship with him. Know him. Uh, be filled with him. That's in uh, Ephesians 4. It says that we are to be filled up with the fullness of Christ. And he's a great man. He's the greatest. There's nobody, there's nothing like him. No one like him. No one ever was able to put him down. 
Right? He gave his own life. As he said, I love what he says to Pilate. He says, are you a king? So you are a king. And he says, that's right, I am a king. And instead of my kingdom was of this world, my servants would be fighting for me right now. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. You know, and, he's, and he says, I mean, he could have stopped the whole thing with a word. And he didn't because he's building a kingdom. And you and I are in it. And it's just so wonderful. Now, I'm really glad for this morning's class because of my mind was not in the right place this morning. And now it is. <laughs> All right? It's, it's the Word of God. It's alive and powerful. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And restores us. And I remember that it was Psalm 19. That God's law restores the soul. Thank God for it. All right, look at Psalm 69.1. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk deep. I have sunk in deep mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. All right, Jesus at the end of the cross got thirsty. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, then I have to restore. It's completely unmerited, unwarranted what he went through, but he went through it for us. So in Psalm 69, uh, we have this this, this psalm is about our Lord's passion and his great suffering. Now, David in verse 5, as David is the author of this psalm, he writes about his own guilt, which wouldn't apply to Christ because he's sinless. But notice verse 5, O God, it is you who knows my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. All right, so Jesus would not have said this or prayed this because he's sinless. But David here, though he knows he's writing about his son to come, the Messiah, includes his own sin in here. And notice how grateful he is. And notice how nothing is hidden from you, Lord. Nothing. There is no point in me hiding my sin from you or trying to. Just openly confess it. But if it weren't for Christ, we'd all be guilty I mean, we're all guilty, but we'd be destined for the lake of fire. So in verse 9, let's get through it here a little bit. Verse 9, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. All right, this is stated, this is directly um, about Christ. The zeal for your house has consumed me. The, the disciples write about this afterwards when they realize why Christ cleansed the temple which he did on two occasions. <clears throat> the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And there is his death on our behalf. Look at verse 15. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. Now, you can imagine that what's going through Christ's mind while he is hanging on the cross. His suffering is immense. Now, he's not up there with a big smile on his face. 
And his suffering is incredible. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These hours on the cross, roughly six hours, uh, we can't really comprehend it. So when we're praying or we're thinking about this, we also will have to suffer in a similar way. Not to the level that he did. None of us can handle that. But we are called to suffer for his name's sake. And if you're in the midst of it, words like this, if you're praying this, uh, you know, you should be, we would all be praying this or something like it. If we're not going through the suffering, we know that we will. And so we can ask God for wisdom, guidance. But if you're going through something, some uh, difficult, undeserved suffering, which all of it is difficult. And these words are going to sing to you. Uh, go to verse 20. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. I looked for sympathy, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Which is an exact, that's a prophetic line about what exactly would happen on the cross. <clears throat> Where's the sympathy? None. Sympathy is very helpful. When people encourage you and give you sympathy when you're suffering, it's very helpful. But when there's none, and you know what we can so easily do when no one's around to give us the sympathy that we want, we start blaming people and getting bitter at people because they're not there. All right, they're, they're, just, they're not here for me. They're not comforted. They're not saying the words that I want. But you have to realize that there's going to be times like this where it is God's will that there's nobody there to comfort you. That's his will in certain situations. If nobody's there to comfort you, know it's his will. And then, you know, and, and then you can think of our Lord... If you're going through undeserved suffering and no one's there to comfort you, right? you're experiencing him. And hopefully we can remember that. And it'll make it different. It'll make it not only bearable, but at some level joyful. All right, so now to a victory psalm. Psalm 110. This is the most quoted psalm in the whole Bible. It's actually the most quoted thing in the whole Bible. Psalm 2, we've already looked at Psalm 2, and Psalm 110, witness of Christ's victory over his enemies and the establishment of his kingdom and his worship by his people. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, array there refers to our dress, that we're dressed like priests. Uh, When we return with Christ in Revelation 19, we're dressed in white. And that's the holy array. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Meaning many. 
There's going to be many of us. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek, a priest and a king. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So this, uh, the, the second part is obviously about the second coming. In the second coming, he comes back in wrath and he destroys all the armies that have forged and formed themselves against God. It's going to be a great day. And notice there's going to be a lot of death. He's going to do a lot of killing. In fact, Isaiah has him covered in blood. In Isaiah 63, uh, the Lord is covered in red. And he said, "Why?" And the prophet says, "Why are you red?" And he says, "This is the blood of my enemies." Yeah. You know, so, all those people that we think, "Oh my God, they're getting away with it," and nobody's getting away with anything. Don't you fret. No one's getting away with a thing. All of us will give an account, will we not? And, but the first, the first part of this psalm is about the session of our Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's where he is right now, our victorious Lord. And, since we're in him and he's in us, where are we seated? With him. Uh, in Ephesians 2 we have been raised, made alive together with him, raised up together with him, seated together with him. That together is in all three of those, meaning we're together with him, seated with heaven in Christ in heavenly places. So, you know, your victory is secure. And this is the great news, right? So what have we seen this morning? The great news, this good news. It hit, we've lost our image. Well, we didn't lose it. Sorry, I'm back up there. Our image was fallen. We're born with it. By the way, if you want to blame Adam for all your woes, that's that's a cop-out. That's a cheap cop-out. Is it his fault? Well, sure. But it's all our fault. Now, getting back to McDonald's line there, what is is wrong with you? (laughs) Anybody ever said that to you? What is wrong with you? Uh, Well, there's a lot of things wrong with me. And the number one thing is my sin. That's what's wrong with me. Uh, so we weren't get, we weren't given Adam's we weren't restored Adam's image before the fall. We were given Christ's image, and that's what we now possess. The new creature is in Christ, and so we have His image. Uh, <clears throat> having His image makes all the difference in the world. That's why we are to be Him, because we are Him. Uh, he is the head, we're the body. And that beautiful passage in Ephesians 1, uh, at the end of Ephesians 1, says that we are the fullness of him. As he fills all in all, we are the fullness of him, his body. And so our Lord sits at the right hand of God. And Jesus brought, brings this psalm up to the religious leaders. This was just a few days before his death. In Matthew 22:45, he quotes Psalm 110, and then he says, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And what's amazing is they don't have an answer for him. They, they're like, Duh, I don't know, and, and they don't know what to say. They say nothing. 
And it, it almost looks like they've never really asked this question. I mean, Pharisees who study the Old Testament their whole lives, they never ask that question? How could David, how could David call his son Lord? But apparently it never did. So what was Jesus getting at here? Well, the fact that he would be born the son of David, but also be God. So it's really hypostatic union. And, you know, he brings this up to them, which then, therefore, he brings it up to us so that we can look back at it. All right, I've got a few more Psalms here, but I know we have to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Well, you know, you're in this Psalm, so let's just do this one. We'll read through it quick, and then we'll, we'll do the Lord's Supper. Go to Psalm 45, because <clears throat> we're in this one. This is the wedding. Uh, What's awesome, well, there's many things that are awesome about this wedding, but one of them is that we are given the clothes to wear by Christ. He dresses us. You know, so if you're going to a great wedding and you're like, ah, what do I wear? You don't have to worry about that here. Psalm 45, for the choir director according to Soshenim, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a song of love. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You, speaking to the king, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows uh, are in the uh, heart of the king's enemies. Uh, <clears throat> so just pausing there for a second, we have the, the warrior. He's a warrior, obviously. Uh, and... You know, his, and he, he's majestic, this warrior. I love in verse 4, it says, Ride on in victory for the cause of truth and meekness. Meekness. As he's shoving his sword through your head. Is that what you're going to think of as meekness? But uh, truly, that is the, what is here. That he is humble and meek, but he is going to destroy in his wrath, as we saw in the second coming. But he's, he's not only a warrior, he's also, in verse 2, fairer than all the sons of men, and he's a poet. Grace is poured upon your lips. So he's a poet-warrior. Right? This makes sense. It's kind of like a king-priest, a prophet, priest, and king. He's beautiful. His words are gracious, but he's also a fierce warrior. And then in verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. So this is the song uh, at the wedding. And the king's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen. 
in gold from Ophir. Uh, apparently from Ophir was a very wonderful quality of gold. And that one standing at his right hand is you and me. That's his bride. See, we're clothed. Uh, we're beautiful. Who has made us beautiful? Jesus Christ has in Ephesians 5. We're without spot or wrinkle. We don't have a wrinkle or nothing. Right? We are beautiful because he has made us beautiful. And this is, this is us. This is our destiny. And that's why now, even though I don't have my resurrection body and I don't look like a beautiful gold lady, uh, whatever, you know, uh, but my, my thinking and my actions, I am to live and be beautiful like he is. Right? The, this, these words are him and they're me. And I am this bride. I'm to respond to him. Right? I'm under his authority. He's my husband. I am to reflect him. And I was made for it. In everything I do. All right, let's uh, we're gonna pass out the elements this morning, and we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Thank you. Uh, you can uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, as you see on the board in Matthew 18, 
it says that where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. This is from the words of our Lord. Uh, And this, uh, if you include water baptism, there's two sacraments that are given to the church. I know not, not everybody includes water baptism. But uh, certainly the Lord's Supper is, is required, right? Christ told us, keep on doing this in remembrance of me. So he told us to do it. Um, but what we also find in this is it's not a, just a ritual. Uh, the, and there's a great long debate at the Reformation about whether during the Reformation, between Luther and Calvin and Zwigli, who was from uh, Sweden, I think he was from Sweden. But anyway, that whether the Lord was actually in the bread, you know, whether in that He's actually physically here, and and this is my body, right? So and they had this great debate about that. Uh, <clears throat> this is silly, but anyway, uh, what we do know is that Christ is here with us. If we separate the ritual from the man, then the ritual becomes meaningless. It's just the ritual. And, it's, and this is a very precious time because now we're, and, and this is how Christ would exactly want us to see it, that we're sitting with him at dinner. Uh, where we are right next, sitting, sitting with him at this table. And he says, look, uh, as as we eat here and drink, I want you to remember me. Right? Don't forget me and this covenant and what I've given you. So we're not to think of ourselves as separate from Christ, and neither is this ritual. Uh, <clears throat> in Israel, well, they had a lot of rituals in Israel, and none of them were to be separated from God. What happened in Israel when they did separate them from God is they started to worship the rituals. They made a God out of the rituals. And it's because they separated them from God. The rituals were him. The temple was him. His house. And at this table, the Lord's Supper, we're not to be thinking uh, thinking about it as separate from our Lord. Uh, So we're gathered together in his name. That's what we are. That's what we're doing here. So look at 1 Corinthians 11.17. The Corinthians completely forgot this. And so Paul says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. There's a nice contrast here between the Lord's Supper and where Paul says that some of them had taken their own supper first, right? So what did they make of this? They made it like their own dinner, but it wasn't that. Right? This this ritual is Christ himself, 
And so as Paul says, if you want to eat your own supper, fine, do it at home. But when you come together, you gather together, it is for the Lord. And with the Lord, he is the head of the supper. And he's the one who is here. So then Paul warns them. Skip down to verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, meaning some of you are dead. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. So uh, Paul warns them here that the, you know, we, we are to examine ourselves. And their examination is to be one like, uh, what are you doing? I mean, what is this ritual about? And that's what he's getting at. Uh, sure, I mean, you wouldn't want to be here with sin on your mind, right? So we confess that but, uh, and, and get rid of it. Get it off your mind. Don't be thinking of anything sinful. But the Corinthians had gotten the whole thing wrong. They thought that this was just a dinner. But it's not. This is the Lord's dinner. And we're to think of him. We're to be unified. So in Corinth, they had the rich people were on one side of the room getting eaten all the, you know, I just picture them with like a big turkey leg in one hand and a big goblet of wine in the other and it's all dripping down their beards and they're just having a grand old time. And the poor people on the other side of the room are starving, the little scarecrows, starving. Now, if the Corinthians knew that Christ was in that room, would they have acted that way? Right? If, they, if, if Jesus was right there with them, would they have acted that way? Not remotely, but they had forgotten that. And we must not forget it. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are seated with our Lord. And doing so to remind ourselves, this great man, this great God, is ours. He is us, and we are him. He has given of himself to us so that we can live wonderfully. As he said, I give you life, and I give it to you abundantly. So, if you want to read with me in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of our great Lord, let's eat the bread together. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In honor of our Lord, let's drink the cup together.
Let's pray. Our great God and Father, thank you for our Lord and Savior. Thank you for this ritual that makes it clear so that we never forget why we have what we have through the incredible sacrifice of our great Lord and Savior. In his name we pray, amen. I will take our offering and then set you loose in the rain. Everybody's used to you being here now, Grant. Right? You didn't get that. You didn't get that big greeting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Protecting us. All right, let's pray for our offering. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to give. And as your believer priests, we give in worship of you and in honor of you. And so, Father, we ask that you bless this offering and lead us to use the uh, gifts that you give us to your will into your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for the, uh, our gathering. Thank you for our church and for the people here and also all those people online who are a part of us. We thank you for them. We thank you for our leadership, for uh, the people who serve you and worship you. We thank you, Father, for uh, this time. And in this time, the cl- closing moments are always dedicated to anyone who is listening, who has not come to believe in Christ as their Savior. And if you have not, I beg you to please consider who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God-man. He is the Son of God who became a man and took upon himself the sins of the whole world on the cross. Therefore, he was judged for your sins. He was judged in your place. He did all the work. Therefore, all you have to do is to believe upon him. Salvation is by faith. In Christ. So eternal life could be yours if you believe in Christ as your Savior. Christ who has died for you. He is your Lord. He has died for you and has resurrected on the third day. And now sits at the right hand of God. Believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you will be saved. Father, we are grateful and thankful in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Doodle.